Well, I invite you once again to take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke. This morning, we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, and we will be in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through the end of the chapter. Now, as uh, many of you are aware, next Sunday uh, is a, it's kind of a big deal in our household. Uh, next Sunday, Gabrielle is getting married in Chattanooga. And so since I cannot be here Sunday morning and then be at a five o'clock wedding in Chattanooga, uh, Andrew Leitner will be with you next week. Uh, Bryce will also be with us. And so uh, next Sunday, you'll be in Luke chapter 11 and uh, with Andrew and with Bryce. And we will be in Chattanooga uh, looking forward to and trying not to cry on uh, on that particular day. Someone asked me, they're like, hey, are, are you going to do the service? And I'm like, good Lord, no. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say her mother and I and sit down next to Big Amy and cry. That will be my role for the day. Not, not we like Eli. He's fine. He's great. Like, this is not, don't hear me. I'm not banging on the son-in-law yet. That day may come, but we're not there at this point. But uh, it's, it's one of those, as those of you know, who have been through it as a parent, it's one of those, it's one of those bittersweet days. Uh, your family's never the same. And that can be a really great thing. Uh, but there is a kind of, we, we know it's no longer going to be the four of us. It's the, we're now the Jackson Five. And uh, we've gone from the Beatles to the Jackson Five. So there we are. Luke chapter 10 can be found on page 1046 and 1047 in your pew Bible. Luke chapter 10, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. That should be an echo, by the way of our Old Testament reading from this morning. And your neighbor is yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, putting on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Uh, Father, now thank you for your word to us. Uh, we pray that as we think about what it means to be your disciple and as you call us to live in a particular kind of tension, that, Father, uh, this time that we have now in these few moments would be an aid to that end. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There is perhaps no text that has done as much to shape the ministry of the church as our text for this morning. Apart from the Great Commission, Christians have found guidance for what we ought to be doing as we seek to serve and honor the Lord in the passage that is in front of us today. Now, out of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the church decided that they needed to give themselves to the care of the physically and emotionally unwell. And so if you've ever been to a hospital, if you've ever been a patient in a hospital, then you need to know that historically, this particular text was the impetus for hospitals being created. Before, uh, before Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, there were no hospitals. There were apothecaries, and there were doctors, and they would go to see people, and there were colonies for people that had infectious diseases. But there was never one central place for people who needed care until Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And as the early church meditated on Jesus' words to the good hostess, it was decided that whole communities would devote their lives to choosing the good portion, as Mary had. Early monasticism, then individuals who separated themselves from the cares and anxieties of the world in order to focus on prayer and meditating on God's word, well, that found its genesis, that found its beginning in our text for this morning. But is that what this text is really about? Is Jesus really calling his disciples to show the kind of physical care that the Samaritans showed? and to leave all the cares and anxiety of daily life behind us in order to live a life of monastic contemplation. Well, if you turn in your bulletin this morning, and you turn to page 5, it's on the screen in front of you as well, you'll see an outline for our time together. And at the top of page 5, you'll see something there called the big idea. Now, the big idea, we hope, is what the sermon is about in one sentence. The big idea for this morning, then, is this. Jesus graciously gives correction about the nature of discipleship. Jesus graciously gives correction about the nature of discipleship. Now, as we've seen at this point in Luke's gospel, the, the emphasis in Luke has shifted. As Jesus has turned his face and made it clear that he's going to Jerusalem, to everything that awaits him, as they are on their way to Jerusalem, Jesus is teaching and demonstrating what it means to be his disciple, what it means to be his follower. 
And he does so using lots of parables. He does so through his teaching. In fact, if you were wondering, uh, the parables of the Good Samaritan only occurs in Luke's gospel. It's not in Matthew. It's not in Mark. It's not in John. Only Luke records this particular parable for us. Now, before we get to the two points that you see in your outline, there are a couple of things that we want to observe. The first one is this, and, and we note it in, in the, the big idea. Jesus' word to both the lawyer and Martha is a word of gracious correction. Jesus' word to both the lawyer and Martha is a word of gracious correction. You see, they both have the wrong end of the stick. And as we're going to see in just a moment, they both have the same motivation. Now, they go about their business differently, but they both misunderstand fundamentally what it is that the Word of God asks of them. And what we need to comprehend this morning, and one of the things that we need to wrestle with as we think about Jesus and Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a disciple is that Jesus' word as it comes to us is often a word of gracious correction. Jesus doesn't just leave it up to us to kind of make it up as we go. He doesn't leave it up to, to us to go, well, you know, that might be true for Dan, but it's not true for Les, uh, and it, it's not true for Jeff, okay, but it might be true for Ron. What, you know, you just kind of get to make it up as you go. No, that's not true. The Bible is clear, Jesus is clear about the nature of discipleship. And in the places in which we get it wrong, Jesus is very good and very clear about giving us a word of correction. Think about the Apostle Paul for just a moment. Think about that wonderful account we have of Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 6. When the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus, as he was going to persecute the church, Paul was going, actually thinking that he was doing God's work. He was sent by the religious authorities. He was, a sent, he was sent by the people who told him, hey, Paul, what you're doing is good. You're serving the Lord. You're honoring the Lord with what you're doing. And then the word that comes to Paul is a word of correction. No, Paul, uh, you're, listen, I know, I know you think you're serving me, but you're not serving me. Jesus asked the question, why do you persecute me? Friends, when Jesus gives a word of correction, we need to understand that we might not like it, but it is for our benefit. That is, Jesus gives both the lawyer and Martha a word of correction. This is not some sort of divine power play. This is not Jesus being an I told you so. This is not Jesus being that guy. This is Jesus lovingly and graciously correcting those who have the wrong end of the stick. And one of the things that these two stories have in common is that Jesus gives a word of gracious correction to both the lawyer and to Martha. Secondly, 
Both the lawyer and Martha are trying to justify themselves. They're both trying to justify themselves. Now, Luke tells us as much in verse 29. We read, but he, the, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, asked Jesus a follow-up question, but who is my neighbor? Martha, likewise, goes to Jesus and not her brother Lazarus. Look at verse 40. In verse 40 we read, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. This is how riled up Martha was and how badly she wanted uh, some sense of justification for what she was doing. She went to Jesus and not to her brother. And that was not what you did in that day and time. Martha is an unmarried woman. Jesus is an unmarried rabbi, an unmarried teacher. This was a kind of social taboo, and it's unfortunate because out of her zeal for self-justification, it's led some scholars to say, oh, you know what? We think Jesus and Mary must have had a thing on the side, or maybe Jesus and Mary were secretly married. They just didn't tell anybody. Because if not, really the person that she should go to would be the male who was responsible for them. Now, don't, don't at me, don't send me emails about how hateful and, and oppressive the, and misogynistic the Bible is. This is simply how their culture worked. The person she should have gone to was her brother Lazarus and say, hey, it's great the teacher's here. It's wonderful everything that's going on. But, you know, there's dishes to do and they don't wash themselves. And Mary's not so important that she can't wash a few dishes. But she doesn't. She goes to Jesus instead. Friends, as we think about the fact that they both have the same motivation, that they're both trying to justify themselves, we also need to pause this morning and realize that we're all given to the same thing. We're all really good at trying to justify ourselves. I love the way that Paul Tripp puts it. Paul Tripp says we all have an inner defense lawyer and we need to fire him or her because our inner defense lawyer is a lying... I mean, you could say, well, of course, they're a lawyer. Insert your favorite lawyer jo joke here. Uh, my, my personal favorite lawyer joke is, what do you call a group of lawyers skydiving? A skeet shoot. It's okay. <laughs> like, oh, it's not a dad joke. It's a lawyer joke, I promise. But we all have this inner defense lawyer. We all have this, this voice inside us that always wants to state our case and always is seeking to justify ourselves. And friends, understand that in both instances, with both the attorney and with Martha, they're both motivated by this desire to have their own actions or their own attitudes justified. And as we're going to see from Jesus, we need to fire our inner defense lawyer now. 
When things happen and you want to justify yourself and you get surly and you get riled up and you get your hackles up, that's your inner defense lawyer. You need to fire them immediately. So if it's not about justifying ourselves, what is it about? Well, first, it's about giving what you yourself have received. It's about giving what you yourself has received. Parables, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, are wonderful things. We all love really good stories. And they're wonderful things until we get lost in the weeds. And if you know anything, if you've, if you've got notes in your study Bible, or if you've looked at a commentary in Luke's Gospel, you know that the church has taught and thought some really interesting things about this particular parable. They've made it an allegory. And so Jerusalem is one's relationship with God, and Jericho, of course, is being backslidden and being in league with Satan. Uh, there's also a kind of historical uh, punch in the gut for the audience to whom Jesus was speaking. It isn't that he says it's a Roman centurion who comes by. That would have been detestable. But Jesus chooses, in verse 33, the most historically despicable figure that he could have come across. He talks about it's a Samaritan who is the hero of this particular story. Now, the Samaritans were unfortunate half-breeds who were left by the Assyrian Empire. So what happened in 722 BC, uh, the northern ten kingdoms of Israel were overthrown by a nation called Assyria. And the Assyrians took some of the, of the folks from, uh, from the north, from Israel, they took them into captivity. They left some folks behind. Now, what the Assyrians and other ancient powers in the ancient Near East would do is they would bring people from all over the world and they would repopulate them in the area that they had conquered. They didn't want to leave just Jews there and they didn't want to leave a sparse population there. So they would bring Hittites in, they would bring folks from all over the world, all over the places they had conquered, and they would resettle them in the area that they had conquered. And so Israel, the Ten Kingdoms, isn't really the Ten Kingdoms anymore. It's got some Jews, and it's got folks from all over the world. And as those folks intermarried, as generations went by, that, that area, that area known as Samaria, became populated by the Samaritans. And the folks from the two southern tribes, true Jewish folks, despised the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. They kind of followed the religion of Israel, but kind of not. And so the Romans, at least, were just sheer Gentiles, and they were just ignorant, and they didn't know any better. But the Samaritans were people that had some Jewish blood in them, and they were living in the promised land as permanent inhabitants. And in the mind of a Jew, they should not have been there. And there was nothing more despicable that you could be in the Jewish mind than a Samaritan. And not just here, but also in John chapter 4, we see Jesus portraying Samaritans in a way that was absolutely counter to the way that most Jewish rabbis would have thought about them. Now, we can get lost in the weeds of all those things. We can get lost in the weeds of why a Levite and uh, why was one a priest and, and what's going on. 
but friends, we, we want to make sure that we get to the punchline. Let's start at the end and read backwards. Jesus, after telling the story in verse 36, asked the lawyer this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Note his answer in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Well, do what? Show mercy. Don't walk around thinking that because you're a Jew and because you keep the law and because you're a very religious person that you're somehow better than everyone else. See, the great need of the Jewish people in Jesus' day wasn't to be more religious. It wasn't to be more law-following. Their great need was they needed mercy from God. But they didn't know it. The lawyer is trying to justify himself with his command of the law. The problem is the law doesn't really have any command over him. See, the goal is not for him to demonstrate his mastery of the text. But Jesus is pointing out that the text has not mastered him. Yes, he knows the right answer. But being the smartest kid in the class doesn't mean that you really actually understand what it is that God is calling his people to. Jesus makes it clear, listen, if God has indeed shown you mercy, then you ought to do the same thing. You ought to give what you yourself has received. Keep your finger in Luke chapter 10, but turn with me over. You're going to take a right, and you're going to go to the New Testament book of 1 Peter, which is found on page 1219 in your pew Bible. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. And I, and I, want, to, I want you to listen to how it is that Peter addresses the church, right? He's writing. He tells them to the elect exiles. He tells them where they are. And I want you to listen then to how he talks about the church and how it is that he speaks of what is the motivation for God's, uh, God's great action. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great, what's the word? Mercy. He doesn't say according to his great favoritism. He doesn't say according to his great justice. He doesn't say according to the fact that you aced the theology exam and therefore you're in. No, he says according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, all the wonderful stuff that Peter says is coming your way. Do you know why you're receiving it? It's not because you're of the right ethnic group. It's not because you believe the right stuff. It's not because you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. It's not because you don't drink, smoke, chew, or go with girls who do. No, he says in verse 3, it's according to God's great mercy. 
And friends, we don't earn mercy. We need it, but we don't earn it. See, the lawyer feels like he's earned it. He's going to seek to justify himself. And if you feel like you've earned something, you're going to argue for it. If you feel like you've earned a raise or if you feel like you've earned a promotion, if you feel like there's something that you've earned in your life, if someone tries to deny it to you, you will argue with them. But if you're living a life of merciful gratitude, if you understand that you yourself have received mercy, that's, that's the basis of your hope. Not that you're awesome. But if you realize that the basis of your hope is God has shown you mercy, then you can give yourself. You yourself can give what it is that you have received. You can bestow that to others. I remember uh, several years ago preaching on this parable um, and someone came up to me afterwards and said, well, preacher, that was a nice sermon. But I just, I, I don't believe I can do that. And so we went and had lunch later in the week and we talked about it and come to find out that it wasn't so much that this individual struggled with showing mercy to others. <laughs> this individual struggled with showing mercy and understanding that he was the recipient of God's mercy himself. Friends, sometimes the person who, to whom you most need to show mercy is to yourself. You didn't earn it. You're never going to earn it. Yes, your mama loves you. But you could never hope to earn or be good enough or be worthy of what it is that Peter lays out for us in 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 3 to 5. No, it's according to mercy. God has shown you mercy. You can show others mercy, and you can show mercy to yourself. Secondly, we need to feel the tension of being and doing. Feel the tension of being and doing. Turn back, if you would, uh, to Luke chapter 10. And it was interesting, this whole week I thought, well, what in the world? Uh, does a good Samaritan have to do with a good hostess? What's the tie? Well, it isn't just the idea that they're both trying to justify themselves. But it, Luke is here, and we need to remember that Luke is writing a kind of theological biography of the Lord Jesus Christ. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus knows, and Luke knows, that if all we have is the parable of the Good Samaritan, we're going to go out and we're just going to make a mess of things because we're going to think that the essence of discipleship is all about going out and doing. You go do likewise. Oh, man, that's it. I'm going to do. I'm going to do. I'm going to do for Jesus. And listen, the world hadn't seen folks like are going to do all the stuff that I'm going to do for Jesus. And there are always those who see the Christian life primarily in terms of what they're doing for God and the gospel. Friends, I hope you understand why simply viewing the Christian life in terms of what you're doing for God is particularly unfortunate in our 
cultural context. Because as Americans, we love to be busy. We are addicted to being busy. If someone says to you, how are things going? If you don't have a laundry list of things to tell them, you feel bad, don't you? You feel like you're slacking. Now, those of you who are farmers, and unfortunately you didn't get to watch the Lions' triumphant victory over the Packers at Lambeau Field because you were out harvesting, we get it. We're not saying, hey, we're not, we're not, we're not making you feel bad. There are seasons. Or uh, we have an accountant here who, if we see him between uh, January 1st and April 15th, it'll, it'll be a blessing. And so, Ron, it's good to see you, brother. Uh, we, there are seasons, right? There are seasons in our vocations, in our work, in which we have to do, and we get it. And the Bible speaks of the urgency of our doing, that the days are short, that the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ is imminent. But friends, let's understand, being busy and being godly are not the same thing. There are some folks, too, who uh, they're doing in their busyness. They do it not because they're seeking to serve Jesus in the gospel, though that's what they might tell themselves. There are folks who are busy and they do, 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 because it facilitates the kind of charade of control that they want to have. The more I do, then the better the opportunity is that I can actually control what's going on in my life. But by putting the story of Mary, Mary and Martha right after the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus makes it clear that there's an inherent tension in the Christian life. Friends, the Christian life isn't just about doing and doing and doing and doing. The Christian life is also about being. There's a tension between doing and being. One of uh, my pastor friends likes to put it this way. Whenever a, a pastor is feeling stressed, whenever a pastor is feeling just kind of burned out and overwhelmed, he will say, listen, never forget that you were a sheep before you were a shepherd. Never forget that you were a sheep before you were a shepherd. Too many pastors forget this. Um, one of the, some of you have asked about what it is that I'm going to be doing with, with practical shepherding. And, uh, and so we've talked about that. But one of the things I love about the ministry is practical shepherding will seek to say to every pastor, hey, these need to be the priorities in your life, your own soul, your family, and then your calling. Your soul first, your family second, your calling, third. See, a great number of you, if something unfortunate happened in your marriage and you're no longer married, you can probably keep your job. But if a teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church in America goes through a divorce, guess what? Guess what they're not going to be doing for a season? They're not going to be pastoring. And it should absolutely be that way. But it's, it's clear, practical shepherding tries to make clear to guys, hey, listen, yeah, we can talk about all the things you need to be doing as a pastor, and we can talk about all the activities that ought to be going on, and we can talk about your to-do list, 
and we can talk about how busy you're going to be. But at the end of the day, it isn't about all the things that you're doing. It's also about who you are. You were a sheep before you were a shepherd. There's a wonderful book out right now. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. There are some issues with it. And if you read it and you want to talk about it, would love to. But I, I love how the author puts it. He says, here's, here's the model of discipleship that Jesus gives. Spend time with Jesus, be with Jesus, and then become like Jesus. Be with him, become like him. See, even that, that thing that we have in the Bible that animates us to do, 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 the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells us to make disciples. In other words, we are to make more people who become like Jesus. We need more people who feel the tension between being and doing. We need more people who understand they were a sheep before they were a shepherd. We need more people who understand it isn't just about your serving and your anxiety and your troubles and your busyness. Pay careful attention to Jesus' final words. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Friends, when you are with Jesus, and when you become like Jesus, that cannot be taken away. There will be a season, there will be a time in your life in which you can do no more. Your body simply will not let you do it. Your mind will simply not let you do it. But you will always be more like Jesus. Now, I realize this morning as we think about Jesus graciously giving correction that none of us like correction. The thing about this, we have the Simeon Trust Workshop is coming up this week. And one of the things that happens in the workshop is you get feedback, you get correction. And nobody hates correction and feedback more than pastors, right? We would love to think that the word we're giving you is some sort of fantastic, wonderful, divine, poetic word, always above reproach, and that it's we're making an A all the time. And when someone points out that that isn't true, we, we, get, we get a little owly. So we do need some assurance after we get correction. It isn't just enough that the Lord Jesus, through uh, these stories, corrects us about what it means to be his follower. But we also need to hear Jesus give us some assurance. And he does. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded that every time we come to the table, here's what's going on. God is saying to us, I am your God and you're my people. It's a family meal. You once were not my people, as Peter's going to point out. But now, by my great mercy, I've called you my people. So here's the deal. On those days in which you feel the need for your inner lawyer to just run amok and you are up to your eyeballs in self-justification, the Lord says to you through the table, I'm your God, you're my people. 
when you are out of your mind busy and you think that God loves you more because of all that you're doing and all that you're attempting and all that you're trying to accomplish, in the midst of all your busyness, the table comes to you and says, I'm your God, you're my people. Friends, this morning we have heard the gracious correction that Jesus gives us about what it means to be his follower. Now we get to come and taste and see of his goodness. And we get to be reminded that we are his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gracious word to us. Thank you for the way in which you correct. Uh, even though we don't like it, we need it. And we thank you for the ways in which you correct us. Father, we pray. Uh, there's someone here this morning that doesn't understand, that thinks, no, 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 the, the essence of love is you just tell me everything I'm doing is awesome. Father, uh, would your spirit impress upon them the gracious nature of this? that receiving your correction is actually for their benefit. And Father, in the midst of a culture that is obsessed with busyness, Lord, not just for the sake of kind of emotional sanity and for the sake of our bodies and all the autoimmune things and all the, all the stuff that happens when we just act like idiots because we're so incredibly busy and we're so astonishingly important. Father, help us to see in the midst of that that being your disciple isn't merely about all that we're doing. But Father, it's about being with the Lord Jesus. And in that, we become more like the Lord Jesus. So we thank you now for this word of assurance. We thank you that in spite of our desire for self-justification, in spite of our busyness, your son gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed. You invite us to family meal because we're your sons and your daughters. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.